You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. When we think of the messianic prophecies from this perspective, we see that the Old Testament whispers to us about the coming of the Messiah. Join us during our Advent sermon series titled, Rumors of the Messiah, where we confirm the whispered prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the birth, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're starting in Genesis 3, so if you're able, I encourage you to stand with us in honor of reading God's Word. Hi, I'm Amy Ucellis. Um, I serve in our student ministry here as one of the small group leaders for our high school girls. Um, and I have the privilege of reading our text today. So I'll be reading Genesis 3:15. if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles or it's on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Amy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the season of Advent in which you remind us that all is not right in this world, but you've came to make all things new. May we sit in this season just reminded on the just the, the mind-boggling truth that the eternal Son of God became man, bore our flesh, lived among us. And Lord, may we be present with you today. You're here in each one of our lives. You're here in this church. And Lord, let, let us taste your glory. And let us be reminded of how amazing you are. Lord, bless your word and your people this morning. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can be seated. One of the benefits of being a transplant, if if you didn't know, I'm a transplant. Um, by transplant, I mean a person that doesn't wasn't raised in the city they um, now live in. So I was raised in Tennessee. One of the benefits of that is none of you guys know what I was like when I was a kid. It's a strong benefit, strong benefit of, of, of you guys not knowing all that made Zach, Zach. And not that I'm trying to hide anything, but I'm not disclosing stuff unless you ask. Like there's stuff that I'm just not wearing and putting my wallet and giving out on my business card. I'm just not going to do that. And I think if you guys hung around with friends, family, teachers growing up, I think the way you would describe Zach today would surprise a lot of those people. One of those things is my sh- the, the shoes I like wearing. They would be very surprising to the shoes I grew up wearing. I think they would be vastly surprised that I'm a passionate Kentucky Wildcats fan. Like they would blow their minds and they would be really confused. And some of them are really still confused today. I think they would be surprised, they would be surprised that camouflage is not in my regular um, routine of wearing of my wardrobe. And one of the things that would surprise them is that Zach likes to read. It would blow them away. And especially my middle school and high school teachers, they wouldn't know what to do with that. Because I mean, this may be surprising to you guys. I, I wasn't the brightest kid growing up. 
I didn't have all the accolades. I, I didn't graduate with any of those fancy words you smart people graduated with when you graduated high school. I, I'm not telling you my GPA, but it, it wasn't very high. It wasn't the greatest GPA in the world. I didn't graduate with everybody patting me on the back. In fact, I graduated high school bragging that I only read one book in my whole education. Only one book. It was The Hobbit. The first chapter hooked me. I was like, I'm going to read this whole book. And it's really good. But the other books, no, not a chance. And what got me through, my students, you don't pay attention to any of this. What got me through all of my high school, middle school career is this website called Cliff Notes. Anybody know Cliff Notes? Anybody survive off Cliff Notes as well? Yeah, they got me that amazing C average. They got me through, got me past. And one of the, one of the reasons I went to Cliff Notes is they summarize these long, blabbering books. These, these cliff notes would get me to, like, oh, yeah, this, get me to the point. Because I'd often read books, and I'd get in there, and I'd be like, just tell me the point. Like, what, why are you still talking about this character? Nobody cares about this character. Just tell me what you're trying to tell me. And I still ask that question today. Like, okay, give me the point. Get to the point. But I was just so always so frustrated with reading books. And it's like, this could have been... 10 pages. This is why I like watching TV shows and movies. Really quick, in and out, I'm done. This book can't do that. And I would, I would argue that some of us think about the Bible that way. It's a long book, if we're honest. It's a long book. It's a big book. 66 different books within this book. A bunch of different authors. And we pick it up, we read it, and we're like, hey, this, okay, I know this is good. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. I know this is a really godly thing to do. But what the heck is this about? Like, what is the point, God? Today, I'm going to attempt to share the point of the Bible. I don't want to overpromise, <laughs> but in this verse and in this sermon, my hope is share what is the point of this book. It's really maybe oversimplified in two words. Jesus wins. It's the point of the whole Bible. It's the point of God's redemption. It's the point of this verse. So what I want to do is show you how Jesus wins in this verse. Jesus wins in the Bible, in the story that he's writing. Then if that's true, how does that story change our story? If Jesus wins is the point of the story of God, how does that story change our story? So we pick up in Genesis 3.15, um, but we, we're, we just came out of Genesis, really beneficial for us, because if you just jumping in with us, we're in this new series called Rumors of Jesus. We're trying to see Jesus in key Old Testament passages, which points us to the main point, that is Jesus. But Genesis has helped us see that this chaotic world was once dark, vast, and void. And God, being a beautiful creator, created this world with beauty and order. And he put us on it. And humanity was on this planet. But humanity rejected God's rule. They ate of the fruit. They were tempted by the serpent. And they rejected God's rule. And God came to them. And he met with them. And he shared with them their punishment for rejecting his rule and reign. So he's this, where we are in chapter three is he's given his, these punishments to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. We pick up in verse 14 where he's punishing, sharing the punishment 
of the serpent. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I will he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 14 is this first, he's talking to this serpent, he's looking right at him, he's telling them his cursing. He is being cursed before tempting Adam and Eve. The serpent is the one who tempted Adam and Eve with eating of the fruit, and he is cursing him. It's a reminder that temptation, tempting somebody, is just as much of a sin than actually committing the sin you're tempted with. And Jesus says this, and when he says, do not tempt uh, woe to those who tempt little children. So he, think about this posture of a dad coming into his two kids and the one who tempted his kid and he's looking at him and he's going to give him a punishment. He's going to curse him. He's going to give him um, this, this, this heavy-handed dose of discipline. He says, look what he says. He says, um, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. I think this is a strong theological argument of why snakes shouldn't be had as pets. Not tight-fisted about that. If you have a snake as a pet, you're, you're still welcome here and we love you. But this, he says you're cursed. This serpent is cursed over all animals. He's punished him. I don't know if the snake had legs before because he said you will crawl on your belly the rest of your life. I don't know all the physiological effects of that. He said you will curse. You will go on the ground the rest of your life. Then he jumped at verse 15 and he says this. And I'll put hostility between the serpent and the woman. You and the woman. There's this war going to happen between the woman and the serpent. And we see this and the rest of the Bible is this, this physical, spiritual, soci sociological, emotional war between this serpent and this woman. And we see this imagery in Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. Look what it says. Listen to what it says. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, that Satan, when Satan was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. So when Say, one of the first things Satan does is imagery. We don't know all John's talking about in the book of Revelation. He, he starts pursuing the woman who gave birth. This, this hostility was real between her, the, the, the Eve, and the serpent. But you also see the hostility between her offspring and your offspring. So the, the children of Eve and the children of the serpent are going to have hostility between each other. And he's, he's cursing um, this, this serpent. He's telling them that you will have war between the, the humanity and your, your children. And the Bible is kind of given two categories for humanity here. There's the children of Satan and the children of Eve. Other scholars have called this the children of the blessing and the children of the curse. And curse may sound like strong language, but we definitely think Satan should be cursed, right? He tempted and ruined the world. 
It's a part of ruining the world. He rejected God's love, rule, and reign way long ago. He was in heaven with God, and he rejected that, and he has ruined the earth. He's cursed. We want him to be cursed. We, we want justice raining down on Satan. Most of us would agree about, with that. But the Bible goes further than that. The Bible says there's these people that follow the way of Satan, not satanic, but they are rejecting God's rule and reign. And there's people who believe in the promise of God, the children of the blessing. So you have two families in the story of humanity, children of Eve and children of Satan. And we see this war playing out through all of human history and specifically in the Bible. Let's go just one chapter over to the verse four. I think we have this on the screen. Genesis chapter four, verse 11, um, Eve's first children, they come on scene, they hate each other. You have these two brothers that they hate each other and Cain is jealous of Abel and look what Cain does. Cain kills his brother and the first thing God says to Cain is this, so now you are cursed. It's language, blessing, curse. It's language we'll see out through this whole story. Now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. The first generation after Adam and Eve, you see this war happening between the children of Eve and the children of the serpent. People who are going to believe God's promise and people who are going to reject God's promise. Do people who are going to live the way God has called us to live and people who are going to reject ways God's called us to live. So you see Cain and Abel. Then you jump to chapter 12 and you see this promise given to Abram that's to make this great family. Look what it says in chapter 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Listen to verse three. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse Anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So even his covenant with Abraham, he gives two categories of people. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt or I will curse those who curse you. There's two people, children of Eve and children of the serpent. You see it all throughout the history of the redemption. You have Joseph being bought by um, Moabites, by other people not following God, sold by his brothers. You have Joseph as the children of the promise and all these people who bought him and enslaved him, children of the curse. You see in the story of Exodus, these people of Exodus enslaving the Israelites. And one of the first things you see in the book of Exodus is the, the order from the Pharaoh to kill newborn children, to end the promised seed that's coming from Eve. There's this Messiah coming and what Satan wants to do is to end this line of people. He wants to, he knows that God promised that somebody is going to come to crush me. So what should I do? I will start trying to end the lineage of God's people. So what's one of the things he does? He enslaves Israel and he starts killing firstborn children. And then this people of Egypt that were enslaving them, their symbol on their chest plate was a serpent. The symbol of the people enslaving the people of God was a serpent. This imagery of children of the serpent. 
the children of Eve. We see it in Israel as they're always waging war with people that are antagonistic toward God, that have other gods. We, have, we see it in the life of David. And he's trying to follow after God's ways, but this other person named Saul is trying to kill him and not let him be king. And then once he rises to a little bit of prominence, he goes and kills a man named Goliath. And what does he do when he kills him? He cuts off his head. Children of Eve, the children of the serpent. You see it in the Gospels. As soon as Jesus entered the manger, he entered this world, what's the first thing that happens? Herod goes, gets a group of people, tries to get this baby brought to him so he could kill him. Children of the promise, children of Eve versus the children of the serpent. We see it in the Gospels. As soon as the, the Gospel makes people alive and starts a brand new church, that Stephen starts proclaiming the Gospel in Acts, Acts chapter 6. He starts preaching the Gospel. They kill Stephen, and the Gospel explodes throughout other nations. The children of Eve versus the children of the serpent. You see this all throughout human history. And then God gives this promise to the serpent. He gives it to the world. Look at back verse 15. He will strike your head, this promised child of Eve, and you will strike his heel. He will strike your head and he will strike your heel. So this, this lineage, this, this, this seed that's coming, this promised child of Eve that's coming generation after generation, they're waiting on this Messiah. They're waiting on this person that would arrive, that God promised um, God promised the people of God in Genesis chapter 15, they're waiting, they're waiting. And he shows up and his main mission is one thing, to crush the head of the serpent, to kill him. He will strike his heel. The serpent will strike his heel. And we see this played out in the story of Jesus. He's hated, he's spat on, he's ultimately killed on a cross. And listen to the way the New Testament writers talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. Look at Colossians chapter two. I think I have this on the screen. He says, this is what Paul says, he erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he was taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And listen how this describes Jesus' crucifixion and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. At the cross was the victorious triumph announcement. Satan has lost. I'm crushing his head I win. I win. Hebrews talks about it this way. Another book was, I mean, um, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So through his death, he might destroy the only one holding the power of death. His crucifixion destroyed the key holder to death, Satan. Then this is how the story ends. 
Revelation chapter 20. The whole story of humanity ends with these words. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to the works by which were, was written in those books. Then the sea gave up the dead and that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And one, the, each one was judged according to their works. In verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The story of the Bible and the story of humanity ends with death, Hades, Satan, and all of his crew thrown into their cursed eternity. That's how the story ends. The story of the Bible is this war being waged between the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the serpent or the people that believe God's promise and the people who reject God's promise. Those are two families in the story of redemption, the story of humanity. The story of the Bible can be summed up as God creating this beautiful world and humanity rejecting it. They rejected his beauty, his goodness. But God didn't stop with them rejecting it. He continued to pursue them in salvation and redemption. And he promised them a Messiah, a king, a savior that would come. And he arrived in a manger. So when we celebrate Advent, so when we celebrate Christmas, and he went to a cross and he was crucified. And he rose on the third day declaring triumph over this war that's been waged. Upon walking out of that tomb, he says, we win. And if me and you walk in that victory every single day, if you call yourself a Christian, your story has not ended, but the victory has. Your story has not ended, but the war is over. Doesn't mean we don't experience satanic rule. Doesn't mean we don't experience temptation. I'm just saying that Satan is running around like a sore loser right now. He's done and he knows it. He knows it. There's one story of the Bible that Jesus wins. One story, if you're a Christian, to your life. Jesus wins. And the question is, if, if that's true, if that's the story of the Bible, how does that change mine and your story? If that's the story of redemption, if that's God's story, what does it do to your story? What does it invite you into? I'll give you three suggestions that I think play out in your life because of these truths. First, is that we trust because God's in control. We trust because God's in control. That God is not quivering in this battle. He says in verse 15, he says, he will strike your head. Now he might, I'm hoping that he could, Hopefully he will. He will strike your head. He looks at the serpent sitting there. Says, my son, 
is coming one day and he will crush you. He will destroy you for what you've done. He will. It's, it's a certainty. It's a, it's a period to it. There's no crossing God's fingers. There's no stress in his plan. He will crush his head. It's a reminder that, yes, this is a war playing out in Redemption's story. But as you look at this story, you're reminded that you have Adam, the child of God, sitting there being, being shared his discipline like a child. Eve sitting there getting her discipline like a child because she's rejected God's rule. And the serpent is sitting there too. This is not like two gods versus one another and God's kind of battling out with the Satan. Now he's receiving the same type of punishment as Adam and Eve. He's a, he's a creation of God. He's not on God's level. So when you're tempted to think that Satan's ruling and God is out of control, just be reminded that God set Satan on the bench and told him his future. Satan's not in control. Satan doesn't have a plan. Satan knows that I'm done. And that's why he fights against the people of God his whole life. He's punished. Satan can go no further and no longer than God allows him. He's a creation. And God has planned this whole thing out. Look at chapter 2 of, verse of, of Acts and how Peter gives a sermon. I think this is on the screen as well. Listen to the way Peter describes the gospel. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that, that God did among you through him. Just as you himself know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. God raised him up in ending the pains of death. Listen to what, what Peter's saying here. That, that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus happened because God determined it to happen. Yet, these people use lawless men to carry it out. What, what Peter is saying to this Jewish crowd is saying, God determined all this to happen and he used your sinful nature to use lawless people to carry it out. God planned all of it. And how we understand all that, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have all God's sovereignty and human responsibility figured out. I just know that God said, he will crush you. And he might, and he could, And the God that wrote that story is writing yours. The God that said he will crush you, the God that determined the plans from centuries ago, the God that was sure about his son's future, the God that has the whole world in his hands has you in his hands. Your story, your situation, your family, whatever's going on in your life, He's got it. 
He's not quivering. He's not stressed out about it. He is sovereignly over it all. He's got you. We trust him because he's in control. Yes, we come to him with our doubts and our questions and our frustrations. But at the end of the day, we stay at his feet because we know even in our doubts, curiosities, frustrations, that he's the only one that can do something about it. Right? He can handle it. He's a good dad who has all this figured out. The God who wrote this redemption story is writing your story. He's got you. We trust him because he's in control. Secondly, we die because we are safe. It's interesting that that God says to the serpent, he will strike your head. He will strike your head. And then the baby arrives in a manger. Just let that sink in for a second. God promises a warrior to defeat Satan, and he comes, born of Nazareth, to a virgin, to nobodies, in a, in a barn. He lives a nonchalant life, learns how to be a carpenter. And he, when he starts his ministry, he starts his ministry with being baptized with, by a friend he begins to heal people and feed people and meet with people and hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And I'm sure the disciples and even the Pharisees and the Israelite leaders know this may not be the ruler of the world because the ruler of the world would come with a sword, would come bringing war. What they didn't know, what the Bible tells us now that Jesus didn't come to crush Satan by fighting. He came to crush Satan by being crushed himself, being, being crucified. And this is the best, most beautiful picture of the kingdom of God you will ever see. The warrior that was promised came as a lowly, humble, crucified servant and he hung on a cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he rose on the third day. Why? To declare victory over Satan, sin, death, and all their crew. So we die because we're safe in that. We're safe. The way of Jesus is not warfare, it's death. Hear that, Christian? The way of Jesus is not warfare, it's death. That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that to be a living sacrifice, to die to yourself. That's why Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow after me, they must carry their what? Own cross. The way of Jesus is not warfare, it's death. That means we lead with not arguing. We lead with sacrifice. We lead with generosity. We lead with hospitality. We lead with gentleness and graciousness and forgiveness. Why? Because we're safe. Christians, we, we live after the resurrection. We live after the resurrection. 
means you wake up every morning earning no favor from God. You earn no favor from God and you win nothing on behalf of God. You, you will not win the culture for God. You will not win your kids for God. You will not win a community for God. Jesus has already won that. It's secure in the bank, locked up. Jesus has won. Therefore, we can be secure. We can be secure in our identity. We can be secure in our future. We can be secure in our relationships. We can be secure with our Facebook comments because we have nothing to prove. We have nothing to earn. We have nothing to win because Jesus has won. He's won. And that's so freeing that you don't win anybody to Jesus. You don't win any world to Jesus. You don't win anything. Jesus has won. That means we don't have to freak out when things don't go our way. When the government doesn't do what we necessarily want them to do. When our child rejects their faith after they go to college. You pray, you lean in, you have conversations. But ultimately, Jesus is in charge of that. Jesus has won. We die to ourselves because we are safe. And lastly, we hope because he is good. We hope because he is good. This verse, this verse 15 has been called the first gospel. It's the first time good news of the coming Messiah has been declared on humanity. It's three chapters into the Bible. The first gospel is here. But can you sit with that for a second? Chapter three of a 66 book long book. Chapter three, the promise is given. Centuries later, until it fulfilled, we're post, we're post Jesus, right? So that, like Jesus already came, we're great, awesome. Could you imagine being that generation of Israelite, generation after Israelite, generation after Israelite, waiting on this promised Messiah and him never showing up? God, what promise did you give? How are you fulfilling this? Because if I promised you something today and showed up five years later fulfilling that promise, you would think I was a horrible human being. You would. Jesus showed up decades, thousands of years later, thousands of years later. And he wasn't the king they expected. He didn't save how they wanted. Could you imagine the disappointment of these families can I just remind you that just because God hasn't came through for you doesn't mean he's not going to? Just because he hasn't gave you what your heart is longing for doesn't mean he's not going to? Just because you don't see God working in your life doesn't mean he's not working at all? He's not just in control and sovereign and and, and, and he's not just some authority figure. He's good. He wants what you want. He wants to see you 
see your heart's desires fulfilled, but it's terrifying to go there. Right? It's terrifying to hope. You hope for that relationship and it doesn't happen. You hope for that job and you get rejected. You hope for that kid, you're still waiting. So you're, you're terrified of getting your affections centered on this one thing, this thing that you want, and you keep getting rejected. So you just decide, I'm not hoping any longer because every time my hope or my, I get my hope out there, I get hurt. Can I just encourage you to keep hoping? Just because God hasn't came through for you yet doesn't mean he's not going to. And that's not some prosperity gospel. That's the gospel story. And it may not be exactly what you're looking for. It may not be all that you had it made out to be, but God is good and he wants your good. Don't stop hoping. We're not blind optimists or just uh, like... head in the sky type people, pie in the sky type people. We're not just wishful thinkers. When we pray to God and express our longing, express express what we desire, express what we're wanting in our lives and in the world, we don't have just a personal end of a telephone line. We have a good father who has unlimited resources to do whatever he wants to do in your life. So you can go in fear and trembling and anxiousness with that longing you have, that relationship you want. You can ask him for a new job or a relationship or a friendship or child. And you know he hears you. And he's not just like writing it down and shoving it in a drawer. He's there. He's good. Jesus says, ask anything to me through me and he will hear it. Ask anything. Hope is the fuel of the Christian life. If you stop hoping, you will despair. If you stop hoping, you will give up. Will you dare to hope? In your fear, in your trembling, we will hope for a good God, even in your longing, even in your waiting. It may take 10 years, 20 years. It may take thousands of years like it did for the Israelites. But he's good. And he's doing the right thing. Church, let, let us trust because he's in control. Let us die to ourselves. because we are safe. Let us hope. Let's hope because he's good. One of the things that wouldn't surprise people I grew up with, that many of you know about me now, is I'm very competitive. Dangerously, borderline sinfully competitive. It's one of the things that probably unattracted Caitlin to me in a young, a young part of our, our dating. I can remember two instances where I was worried about our relationship while we were dating. One was she went to a student camp with me and I played dodgeball with the students and I got way too intense with the dodgeball. 
And so I was throwing balls way too hard and jumping over lines and playing way too intense. And she just, I remember saying, yeah, I don't know what that was, but uh, could you not do that anymore? The second time was when she went on a family vacation with me and she witnessed a game of family phase 10 um, that didn't go so well. It was really intense, a lot of yelling, borderline violent. And it was not, it was, I was way more immature then. Um, but yeah, it was not good. And Kayla was like, I don't know what that was, but it's not, I, I, that was very unattractive. One of the things we must realize in the Christian life is there's no more competition. We've won. There's no more war to fight. There's no more battle to wage. There's nothing to fear. Christian, we win because Jesus has won. If you put your faith in Jesus, it's done. He won and the war is over. If you're not a Christian here, maybe you're here because you're longing for something greater. You're hoping for something in your life. You're wanting something better for your life. You think church may help that. To encourage you to enter the family of the blessing. Enter the family of the children of Eve. Enter the family of God through putting your faith in the promised one that came, Jesus Christ the Messiah. In your seat, right where you are, you can ask God to save you and say, hey, I'm, I'm done ruling my life. I want you to rule my life. No matter if you're 10 years old in here or 90 year old in here, you can put your faith in Christ today and move from the family of the serpent, move from the family of the curse, move from the family that have rejected God's promise and move with a light switch of your belief, a light switch of your faith, the family of the blessing, the family of Eve. You want to talk to somebody about that today? You can talk to anybody that's on the stage today. Talk to me afterwards or talk to somebody in your aisle. We love to help you see what it means to live under the rule and reign of our good King. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.